hello, welcome, and thank you for listening to the History of the Congo podcast. Episode 1, Introduction The Democratic Republic of the Congo is the second largest country in Africa, and in 2020 had a population estimated in excess of 91 million people. These people live in the 16th most populous country in the world. They live in a tropical land spanning the equator which contains jungle, forests, savanna, huge rivers, mountains and volcanoes. It's a rich area. It has minerals and natural resources in abundance, and with a fertility rate of 6, has the third fastest growing population on Earth. It sounds like a paradise, but it is not. Poverty indicators of education, health and food security are catastrophic. The average life expectancy is 45 years, and 50% of the population is undernourished. The world is trying to help, giving with one hand, but taking with the other. And as yet, efforts have not been successful. A best-case scenario simulation forecasts that it will take until 2030 to reach 1960s levels of development. And we shall see that the best-case scenario rarely works out for the people living there. Somehow, the world and the people with power in the country have managed, time and time again, to collaborate and connive to keep the majority in a position of great suffering, usually for their own personal gain. There is a proverb in the Congo which sums up this extraordinary characteristic of self-harm. It concerns a crocodile and a scorpion. One afternoon in Kinshasa, a scorpion asks his friend the crocodile to help him cross the majestic Congo River. I have to cross over to Brazzaville, but I don't know how to swim. As you swim with such ease and elegance, let me climb on your back so we can leave without further ado. The crocodile replied, Dear scorpion, I know you and the reputation of your kind. Once we get to the middle of the river, you will sting me and we'll both drown. Why would I ever do such a thing? asked the scorpion. If I sting you and you die, I'll drown with you. The crocodile thought for a moment and agreed to help the scorpion. OK, climb on. Let's get moving before nightfall. They left the shore and headed for Brazzaville. As the lights of Kinshasa started to fade, their destination appeared on the horizon. The scorpion had a sudden urge and stung the valiant swimmer in the neck. Why did you do that? asked the crocodile, as he was nearing the end of his tether. I'm exhausted. We're never going to make it. Just before they both disappeared under the murky water, the scorpion whispered in the crocodile's ear. That's the way it is. This is the Congo. Don't try to understand. But we shall ignore the scorpion. This does not have to be the way it is. We shall try to understand this land, and to do this we shall go through the history of the Congo, its people, and our world. But before that, I will indulge an introduction, and then we'll drive into the history proper. So firstly, hello, welcome, and thank you for listening to this very first episode of the History of the Congo. I am aware that there are other podcasts available, and I am delighted that you have somehow stumbled across mine, so thanks for listening. This is our first meeting, so I should say what I mean by the Congo which for me, as you may have guessed, is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The podcast won't just cover the history of the country, but also the events and struggles of the people living within its lands, hopefully with an eye to providing some context to today. So before I begin in earnest, I guess the first question is why? Why invest all this time researching, writing and recording the history of the Congo? And why, more importantly for you, would anyone invest the time to listen to it? Well, I have travelled a little, but not as much as I would like. 
and I have spent much of my life enjoying reading and being inquisitive about our planet and history. But of all the places I have found, the Democratic Republic of the Congo stands out for two reasons. Firstly, the absolute richness of the history there, which covers everything from the development of mankind, the meeting of civilizations, the good and bad of religion, and latterly a key role in World War II and the beginnings of the Cold War. Secondly, to a large extent I feel this history is hidden, or is at least contained within books or podcasts looking at certain aspects of life or travel in the country. There's a number of relatively recent adventure travel books, which is where I started. Tim Butcher's Blood River, Phil Harwood's Canoeing the Congo, and Geoffrey Taylor's Facing the Congo, all document unique and adrenaline fueled journeys in the land less travelled. Supporting this, there is Adam Hosschild's harrowing historic novel, King Leopold's Ghost. This book contains a history which is enough to keep anyone awake at night. It shines a torch on both the horrors of colonialism and the abuse of power, as well as the selfless campaigns of individuals determined to fight it. It's an eye-opener and a must-read, and it does credit to its precursors written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Mark Twain at the start of the 20th century. Yes, you did hear me correctly. The author of the Sherlock Holmes novels devoted a substantial part of his time writing about and beginning on behalf of the people of the Congo. But more on that later, much later. Latterly, there are books documenting journeys in today's Congo that reveal both the hope and optimism in the people living there today. These show how people face the adversity with positivity, resoluteness, and a surprising sad nostalgia for some aspects of the past. Of these, Brem Rawlance's Radio Congo stands out the most. But the real kicker, the Tour de France, is David Van Raybrook's Congo, the epic history of a people. This is the Mani Congo of books, by far the best I have read. And it is all of the above. Adventure travel, global history, hidden history, a people's history, and a geopolitical perspective not usually offered. In short, read it. You really should get that book and read it, listen to it, whatever. It will change your view on adventure and history. As a podcast fan, and I assume that you're within that club, I looked avidly for a Congo history podcast in the lines of, say, Mike Duncan's A History of Rome, but I didn't find anything that resembled what I was looking for. There are a few specific editions concentrating on the CIA's involvement in the power struggles just after the Belgians left, or contemporary accounts of travellers detailing the hardship, but there was nothing that really tried to tie in the strands of history to provide context as to why the Congo came to be as it is today. So that then is my lofty goal. There will be some items overlooked, and maybe inconsistencies, but I have set my sights high in that these should be small, and I invite discussion and comments. One thing for certain is my mispronunciation of African names, for which I apologise in advance. I will do my best, and if you hear other versions, I will have no offence in your dismissal of my attempts. For the record, and for the avoidance of much confusion, our Congo is most definitely not the Republic of Congo the Congo on the northern bank of the River Congo, whose capital Brazzaville you can see from our Congo's modern-day capital, Kinshasa. We will touch on the people in its land as they give context to the DRC, particularly as the colonial era ramps up, but as the DRC becomes more established, these perspectives will fade away. The DRC which we will look at is a land of rich contrast. For armchair geographers and travellers alike, the Congo will conjure up impressions of ballooning megacities, tropical heat, the mighty river, Suka's music, ostentatious suburbs, jungle, gorillas in the mist, and a geological smorgasbord of minerals and lava-filled bubbling volcanoes, where the lava still bubbles at the bottom of the crater. On the other hand, however, 
There is the brutal history of slavery, colonialism, wars, environmental pillaging, governmental abuse, violent crime, corruption and terrifying health crises. Today the Congo is referred to as a rich country with poor people. But why? How did it come to be that way? We cannot fail to mention the horrific hemorrhagic fever Ebola, named after a tributary river in the Congo's northern province where it was first discovered. It is one of the most fascinating lands on our planet. Today the DRC covers a huge geography roughly the size of Western Europe, covering 2.3 million square kilometres, about 900,000 square miles. It has had a few names in the past. Intermittently in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was called Zaire, by its kleptocratic dictator Mobutu Sese Soku. Once before it was called the DRC in the 60s, and prior to this it was the Belgian Congo, which existed, as the name suggests, as a Belgian colony from 1908. Before this, the population lived in some of their direst circumstances, under the Congo Free Strait. This was history's only colony claimed by one man, the greedy and callous King Leopold II of Belgium from 1885. Prior to this, and as far as written records go at least, the Kingdom of the Congo existed from the late 14th century, ruled to a lesser and greater extent by the descendants of the people who migrated there from the north, pushing the incumbent hunter-gatherers, notably including the Pygmies, to the south and east. Throughout the area, many other peoples and empires existed, and still exist, such as the Luba, the Lunda and the Kuba, and we shall meet all of these in time. From now on, all of these lands may be referred to as the Congo, ostensibly to aid continuity and narrative flow, but in reality to justify my future lapses into informality. The name changes above are in one sense meaningless, being just labels stuck on the region at differing times. In another sense, however, they reveal convenient parcels of history, being the label of the country as determined by those who had the power to change the name, normally with an eye to their own grandiose and the projection to the outside world that they wanted to give. This is, of course, oversimplistic. History never moves in these discrete paradigms. They also represent a growing geographic land area from the Kingdom of the Congo's estimated 129,000 square kilometres to today's huge geographical covering. Like all states and kingdoms, though, they are wedded to geography, and the constant theme is a power base some 300 kilometres east of the Atlantic coast. Unlike many countries, Congo's capital, Kinshasa, is not on the coast, but at the western point of the Congo River Basin, the superhighway of the interior. This 200 kilometre navigable stretch of the river reaches from Kinshasa in the west via a 700 kilometre northerly arc to descend back south, flowing over a great plateau at the heart of the African continent. This is the superhighway of Central Africa, upon which all craft move, stowed on vessels from the pirogues fashioned out of single tree trunks, to the faded but lively and bustling river barges, everything has and does move along this stretch. It was this area that represents the essence of Old Congo. It is framed in the west by the broad, shallow, unnavigable delta to the Atlantic, and the ferocious Chute Bioma, once called Stanley Falls, east of Kisangani. These are ferocious cataracts. Just look at the images on the web. They represent one of the very few grade 7 rapids in the world. It's important to get a sense of this large, navigable section of the River Congo, in the middle of the country, as it helps to frame the history. This central section is a large area of the country ready-made for communication, but interestingly misses out large parts, notably the eastern Kuvu, 
and southeastern Katanga regions, which we will look at in detail later. But now we have the scene set, it's time to start the history proper. Our first ancestors split from primates roughly five to seven million years ago. The few precious fragments of bone from early humans suggest that we started to walk upright in the Great Rift Valley, part of which is adjacent to the east of the Congo, about four million years ago. Two million years ago, the first stone tools were used by humans, again in Africa, but in our Congo history, we then jumped to 40,000 years ago. At this time, it is thought that the superb hunter-gatherers, the Babimuti, or Pygmies, drove earlier inhabitants out and settled throughout the Congo's central rainforest. About 4,000 years ago, or 2000 BC, sub-Saharan Africa started cultivation, and the Bantu people of the Benu River, in today's Nigeria, started to establish successful farms. The productivity boost that farming provided allowed the Bantu to spread east and west, and by 500 AD they were settling in the Congo Basin. They displaced the Pygmies in their inexorable push to the margins, culminating in their current existence, with the Pygmies living under oppression from other Congolese as a vulnerable minority in the central and eastern regions. Archaeological finds reveal that the Bantu peoples had sophisticated tools and knowledge of ironworking, which, alongside the first cultivation of plantain in this period, allowed great surpluses and specialisation of the settlers and societies in the river basin. Concrete knowledge of this time is sparse. There are no written records, and it is speculation to imagine the growth of settlements to hamlets, then to villages, and then to towns. But these towns did not live in isolation, and the food surpluses allowed societies to develop luxury ceramics and ironware, which would be traded throughout the river basin, alongside precious gems and furs. Archaeological finds as far back as the 12th century reveal iron tools, giving us some vision as to what level of sophistication these communities had achieved. Communication between the settlements was quicker than travel. The villages had drums which could relay messages throughout the area which would travel as fast as 600 kilometres a day. Writing wasn't developed, but messages could be spread rapidly through the dense jungle, savannah and across rivers and floodplains. It is an easy and academically unsupported leap to imagine these peoples as part of a network of loosely connected great kingdoms such as Great Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe is the largest known medieval settlement in sub-Saharan Africa. It included massive stone structures, and the people produced distinctive pottery, soapstone carvings, ivory, and had gold and copper mines. This connection would have been particularly likely in the eastern regions. The eastern borders of the Congo lie 700 kilometres east of the navigable river stretch, where today's cities of Goma and Bukavu sit. Travel in these regions would have been easier along a north and south axis. People could have moved through the lakes and valleys of the southern Great Rift. These far eastern fringes of the DRC would have been quite disconnected from the central river basin. Evidence of these travel directions exists in the distribution of today's languages. Kikongo is widely spoken in the western Bas-Congo region, and Lingali is the dominant language spoken in the central areas. Continuing eastwards, Lingali gradually subsides to Swahili, the lingua franca of central East Africa. In the West, we know that these settlers formed and lived under the famous Kingdom of the Congo. 
Just south of here, in today's Angola, we find the earliest carved wooden artefacts in Central Africa. This is in the shape of the Leobella mask and resembles an aardvark. It dates all the way from the 8th to the 9th century. First-hand evidence of the Congo Kingdom is rare, but as the first African kingdom that met the Portuguese, we do have detailed written records dating back to the 15th century. So that is the introduction. We are now poised to look at one of the most famous pre-colonial African empires, the Kingdom of the Congo. We will meet this and the lives of the people who lived within it next time. This is when our history podcast begins in earnest. So until then, take care and safe travels. <laughs>